0: Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Daniel Skinner, co-editor with Dr. Berkeley Franz of a book called Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids and Ohio. This book is a compilation of personal stories of addiction from people directly impacted by the crisis. The book is reflective of the opioid and drug crisis across the nation and presents stories from drug abusers, their families, clergy members, health professionals, and policymakers. Dr. Skinner is a political scientist, and Dr. Franz is a sociologist, and both are faculty members at the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine at Ohio University. Dr. Skinner, uh, you and your partner, Berkeley Franz, uh, wrote this book, Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids and Ohio. And you really took a a different tactic to the book. Talk about why you did that.
1: Yeah, our sense was that while lots of people around the state and around the country were talking about addiction and opioid addiction and the opioid crisis in particular, that the narrative had kind of dried up or wasn't capturing a lot of the important stories in people's communities where they actually live. So we wanted to tell stories that weren't being told and bring more of a narrative approach to it. You picked uh, 50 people,
0: I think, uh, from 20 counties uh, out of Ohio's 88 counties. Uh, How did you come across these
1: people? How did you solicit their stories? Yeah, we put calls out in the standard way you, you know, we used to do it back in the old days, I guess. We hung flyers up at cafes and— That kind of thing around, you know, but um, also we just utilized Listservs, the Ohio Poetry Association helped us to reach some of their folks, Uh, you know, different organizations that we knew were doing good work that we found through the web. We just wrote to them to see who wanted to be part of this conversation. And as you might expect, uh, lots of them did.
0: How did you sort of gather them, not just gather them in, but organize them? Uh, I I know you've divided your book in
1: segments. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Did you target those segments or did they just sort of naturally evolve?
1: Yeah, they naturally evolved. We knew that the book needed some kind of a structure to it. So Berkeley and I sat uh, in Grovesner Hall here at Ohio University and with a big whiteboard and, and played around with different organizational approaches. We didn't want to end the book on you know just kind of too much of an easy hope kind of perspective. We wanted to challenge readers a little bit, so we wanted to bring that out at the end. But we also knew we needed to do some due diligence. We needed to kind of describe the situation. We needed to discuss a little bit of the work that people were doing in different communities. So a few different topics did jump out, although you know, there, there's a lot of overlap as well. The voices of people—they came out in different ways, correct? Yeah, it was um, we, we we were committed to doing a multimedia book. We wanted to you know provide people different ways to tell stories. Uh, something as traumatic and as diverse as an issue around opioid addiction you know, requires that people have different ways in. So there is visual art, there's poetry, there are narratives. Uh, we interviewed a few folks as well. Um, there is creative nonfiction in there as well. We wanted to make clear that this story can't be told in one way, that it needs to, to capture it. You need to come at it from different perspectives and, and allow some creativity to be there as well. Coming at it from the addiction side as opposed to the
0: medical side or the legal side, um, why did you choose that in particular?
1: Well, you know, first of all, there's a lot being written about the legal side and, and, and in a way. I think people understand that intuitively. We know we know now what the pharmaceutical companies did and the distributors and we know the story of the pill mills and and that. I think that that story is pretty well told here in Ohio. So the the, the narrative side captures I think the diversity of lived experiences through this. You know, Ohio started being talked about around the country as one of the kind of ground zeroes of this this issue, which is true. What Americans don't tend to know is that there's tremendous diversity in Ohio in terms of the different kinds of places people live, uh, different kinds of communities, north, south, east, west. Uh, And and we think that the book captures that by having, you know, almost a quarter or a quarter of the counties um, in our state. You toured around Ohio and talked to
0: people. Not only did you do it through the book, but you you actually talked to people face-to-face in, in town meetings. Was that initially
1: part of your idea uh, for the book? It wasn't. Uh, you know, we were really pleased to learn, you know, we're social scientists and social scientists – when we think about funding for programs, we don't always think about the humanities. But the Ohio Humanities Council, um, we, we we knew some of those folks, and we were talking with them, and they were really interested in expanding their involvement too, as humanities people, to to really you know start to think about what could they do around addiction. So they funded us to go to libraries and you know around the state, and we're going to continue to have some of those conversations into 2020. Now you have a website that people can go
0: to, correct?
1: Yeah. So also with the funding that uh, the Ohio Humanities Council provided us, notfarfromme.org uh, is the website that we were able to build, which has resources, but also the materials that people can use to hold these kinds of conversations in their own homes, their churches, their you know hospitals, wherever wherever they work. You know um, that that's what the website was for. So you're a political scientist
0: your your co-author is a medical sociologist. Mm-hmm. Uh you teach in a medical school. You're on a medical school faculty. Yeah. That might seem strange to some people talk talk about that whole idea.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we're in strange times here, where you know, I think, especially in medicine, what we've been doing for a long time hasn't always been working, um, and we're trying to innovate our healthcare system. So, people like Berkeley with her work on community-based healthcare. Uh, my work, which is mainly focused on some of the the philosophical or theoretical foundations of how we think about medicine, how we think about healing, um, but also Berkeley and I study together hospitals and kind of how hospitals work and how they 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 you know change communities. So you know, I think uh, across the country, medical faculty are including more people like us, and that's to a certain degree just an acknowledgement that um, we need different perspectives to actually drive health care outcomes. It's not just a matter of um, more technology or better c- clinical skills. There's also the social aspects that we're realizing are just absolutely more important than we realized, I think, in the past. We hear buzzwords
0: in, in terms of the Affordable Care Act, pre-existing conditions. I mean, I could go yeah, on and yeah. on and on. I know that's one of your, your specialty areas, but... Have we as a country really had a good in-depth discussion of health care? It seems like we haven't as it applies to race. Mm-hmm.
1: We haven't had a good discussion on race in many aspects. Right. Is that the same with healthcare? care? I, I think there are a lot of conversations happening. Whether we've had one altogether is a different question. I don't know that there's been much of a national conversation. It happens in pockets. We have people with employer health insurance, for example. We have Medicaid. We have Medicare. And that's just in terms of how people get their direct medical services. Uh, things like the presidential election that we're you know, right in the middle of now, these moments do, as a political scientist, I mean, every four years, students get involved <laughs> and get interested in political science again. And, and that's a good opportunity to get them interested, interested in issues. So you know, I, I do think that that's happening more and more right now um, and hopefully it will continue. Healthcare remains at the top of the list of what Americans um, th- find to be the most pressing in terms of the issues that they're focused on.
0: Trevor Burrus And do they care about cost or availability or quality or
1: all of those and if so, sort of in what order? So in health policy, which is my area, it's slightly different than I think how Berkeley might come at this as a medical sociologist. Uh, We talk about cost, access, and quality oftentimes, the kind of three-legged stool of of healthcare. There's a little game that some health policy people play where they they suggest that you can only have two of those, right? I don't actually think that's right, but it's a little game to say, well, we can get better costs. We can reduce costs. We can increase access. But maybe we have to give a little bit on the quality side. We can get quality and access, but maybe it's going to cost us more. So like, you know, there, there is a little bit of a kind of whack-a-mole game that goes on around that. Um, th- that tends to be how we think about it. But then again, as I mentioned before, increasingly, these conversations are not moving to the just health insurance or healthcare care services or seeing physicians. Although that's important, we're realizing that the real story is the design of our communities, air qual- quality, water quality, crime, uh, you know, nutrition, um, sort, you know, the housing we live in. Uh, the whole living environment. Oh, God, yeah, that, that stuff really drives a much bigger piece of the puzzle. You know, the CDC and other people who have looked at the issue generally say that medical services are about 20 percent of outcomes, if that. So there's 80 percent of the pie that's driven by things like environmental factors, social behavioral factors, um, just the design of how we, we live and, you know, inequality and things like that.
0: Election years uh, – especially major election years, have to sort of drive you crazy I would imagine it, it, in a sense that people I talk with that are really into policy and really into the, the fundamentals of a policy and the do's and don'ts of a policy and the pluses and minuses of a policy sometimes get frustrated with the short change that we get in soundbite politics. Uh, about these issues does that frustrate you as an academic yeah
1: i love election years i mean (laughs) i i I eat this stuff up though and you know i it can be frustrating but i I actually do think to come back to the presidential election for example we're having some pretty productive discussions right now about what we want to do about what we find acceptable Uh, you know Whether it's addiction and we are looking at, for example, the Affordable Care Act is right now, you know, in the courts and could be overturned again. We've been in that state pretty much, you know, constantly. Seems forever
0: since. Yeah, at least since the Trump administration,
1: but even before. Right. And, um, you know, well, you know, OK, if you want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act right now, we're at a time where then people are going to say, well, what about what Medicaid was doing for us? I mean, the opioid issue is deeply connected to medicaid expansion and some of the you know just we need money we need addiction treatment services um you know ohio has them in some places and really lacks them in other places we need to pay for these things and if, you know if you might if you're opposed to something like the affordable care act as like let's, let's say the republicans tend to be in their political conversations fine what's your solution for the challenges that we have what are you going to do to people who are in need of addiction support um, and treatment and things like that. So you know I, I don't mind. I, I'm one of those people who doesn't you know doesn't I don't think politics is a bad word. I think we need to okay. get into it and, and and be involved in it. Um, but certainly it can be frustrating when people are having conversations with the wrong motivations where they're kind of posturing um, or they say they care about so many things, but then they they're unwilling to pay for things. Those kinds of conversations frustrate me. Do you think as a society we have
0: crossed over the idea of punishing addicts and punishing drug abusers uh, from a legal standpoint or a criminal justice standpoint? And we've now crossed over to the point of how do we treat these people? How do we help these people? How do we help those families? And if so. at what point did that happen?
1: I don't think we're there. I'm, okay. I'm uh, you know, Berkeley and I have talked about this a little bit. I'm, I'm I think the cynical, the more cynical one of the <laughs> two of us. Um, you know, I think we've we've gained some ground, some potential ground, and this is why we wanted to end the book with this question of challenging ourselves, challenging our assumptions about things. We've established drug courts, for example, in certain places around the state. Um, we do have more people who talk about harm reduction and helping people instead of going the criminal justice route. At the same time, uh, I think it's to be determined whether this is actually an enduring lesson that's changing the way we think about these issues, or it could be a one-off that addresses this particular one. Uh, there, there are you know, some pieces in the book that do look at you know, LGBTQ populations or look at, for example, the question of race, right? And you say, well, I mean, there's some people of color looking at this issue saying, oh, good, I'm glad you guys got around to, and all of a sudden you care about helping people instead of locking them up. Huh. Isn't that nice to see? But, you know, just to st- there's a wait-and-see approach to say, is this actually going to be a real commitment to helping people with addiction? Or is this about, for example, um, largely white affluent folks, right? What about the next addiction um, crisis that's already brewing, the methamphetamine crisis in the state? That, that's resurging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, so there's a question of whether there are enduring lessons here. Or whether this is actually about this one population of people that is most affected and whether that's going to actually change our legal structures permanently. I'm not so sure, you know, that we've actually learned those deeper lessons. I don't see a real perspective shift going on, but I'm hopeful to some degree that that at least enough people have seen this one and see what works and what doesn't, that we're done with the the lock 'em up approach. Um, but, you know, I think that's the question that Ohioans need to decide right now is, is this crisis in particular going to be enduring? Or are we going to look back at it and say, well, that happened, but we went back to our old ways? I used to be,
0: and in one former iteration of my life, a, a full-time judge. And now I, I sit part-time. And to do that, you have to take continuing legal education. And so I was at a course, and, and they were talking about – this relationship between the legal system and, mm-hmm. and drug addiction. And it surprised me that there have been so few studies done on really do you need that club of I'm going to put you in prison or I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to put you in jail unless you straighten up. Do you need that club to get somebody's attention? And to get them in, it's all been
1: almost all anecdotal. Yeah. T- a couple of quick things I want to mention with that. It, it has been one of the interesting turns in this book and um, in, in our experience talking with folks is that we are now involved in more and more legal discussions with people. Um, South Houston, Ohio Legal Services, for example, we're working with them for a fellowship program that they're developing. We need more people to serve as advocates, especially for children who are somehow intersecting with these um, these issues. There are a lot of parents we've talked to who are afraid to get help for themselves because they're just worried that their kids are going to be taken away. That's the choice they have to make. That's not a fair choice when you're talking about getting people resources. Um, one really nice development along the way that Berkeley and I were able to uh, get involved with was uh, the Ohio Department of Corrections purchased copies of our books to put them in all of the correctional facilities around the, the um the state and I actually went up and spoke to the Correctional Educators Association meeting in Sandusky um, with our Ohio Humanities colleagues. So lots of conversations like that have have been developing, and I think that is really a very important next step that we have to make. As you may know, as a person with a legal background, I mean. Ohio's correctional institutes can be places where we do really good programming and get people help. And for some people, just pulling them out of their current social environments can be an important part of addiction treatment. That said, Ohio prisons are not places where you go to get away from drugs. There are drugs circulating (laughs) through them. So we need to keep those different aspects in mind as we think about what role criminal justice should play. The one thing we have seen in the book, we have a couple of people who are involved with sheriff's offices, right? And, you know, Ohio, 88 counties, 88 sheriffs. It really matters where you are. It really matters which system you enter into. Different sheriffs have different kinds of views. Whether it's punitive or therapeutic or something in between. know, we've talked to sheriffs and sheriff's deputies along the way who uh, have had to retrain what they do. They've had to think about their career in a different way. Um, You know, uh, lots of people around the state are retraining. And I think that that's a good thing for the legal system. But we need advocates. We need to think about our prisons, and we need to think about um, you know, the kind of things that are going on with sheriff's departments and their approaches to locking them up versus um, getting people help.
0: One school of thought says addiction is uh, uh, once one is an addict, once is mm-hmm. one is always an addict till the day they die. Others uh, vary from from that. We're not just talking about short-term care, though. Correct? I mean, with just getting somebody off the drugs initially, no. we're really
1: looking at a long-term issue, are we not? Yeah, of course. And you know, I, I one of the things that's come out in the sessions that Berkeley and I've run at Ohio libraries with the Humanities Council project, uh, and you know, it was interesting for me. I mean, just see for a lot of people, hearing that recovery is possible was transformative. A lot of people just don't believe it. They haven't seen it. And if they don't believe it or see it, then they're not necessarily going to, for example, push that issue when they talk to legislators. Um, I think that a lot of people's minds who have encountered this, especially people very close to them, um, that just learning that was very important. But that said, I mean, yeah, there are different schools of thought. There's, you know, Narcotics Anonymous and AA and those kinds of approaches. And, you know, we, we met a lot of people who, uh, in part of their recovery, is actually becoming involved in advocacy and uh, rehabilitation and addiction treatment services themselves. They've become professionals in that field. Most of them believe that, you know, today is a victory, but tomorrow is uncertain, um, that, you know, you just don't know about tomorrow. And once you get to the hubris of assuring yourself that tomorrow is certain, then you're at risk. Um, the same is true of families who think that they're invulnerable. Um, the reason why we called this Not Far for Me comes from a poem in the book by uh, um, the Dayton um, era, area uh, poet Gerald Green. And, you know, Green uses the phrase to talk just a little bit about the closeness of it, but so many families are just, you oh, know, we're such a good family. We did everything right. And that's exactly the thinking that opened them up to being so vulnerable to this. Thinking that you're somehow different or immune because you have money or because you're white or, you know, you have great schools. You or, live in the suburbs. You, right. Your or kids a star athlete. Right. Church, whatever. Bake, yeah. you know, like bake sales or Boy Scouts or whatever it might be. Um, I think if, if there's anything that we get at the end of this collection, it's for me. I can't speak for Berkeley on this point, but I will say that I hope that everybody in this state feels more vulnerable. And uses that vulnerability to do better things in policy and thinking about it. Once you start to feel like you're somehow exempt, you know you've you've lost the point.
0: We'll be back
1: after this message.
0: Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Talk about that vulnerability, if you would, a little bit, compared to... Uh, Attitude I still think is prevalent uh, in many that somehow someone I- who is addicted has a moral flaw. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's not just a weakness of will; it is a moral flaw, or they would not be in that position but yet to get to the vulnerability you you have to be able to come forward and 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 admit your weakness at least in in uh, drug addiction. Yeah. Talk talk about that marriage or that sort of conflict between those two.
1: Yeah, I mean the first obvious point that comes to my mind is we're all flawed morally. <laughs> you know, I, I mean there. are Lots of people do lots of things. Some get caught and some get locked up and some never get caught and, you know, that's how they live their lives. So it's always a little bit of a crapshoot, I think, with that once you start playing that game. I'm not a religious person myself, but my understanding is that you're supposed to be a kind of humility and an awareness of one's, you know, shortcomings that govern all of us, not that's about you and other, you know, that exempts you from that. So, um There's that, but there's also just the issue that I think people are hopefully learning now with this opioid addiction, and hopefully this will transfer to the next, whenever we think about addiction, is just chemical dependency and what it means. I mean, there's no, you know, there's lots of good reasons to do drugs. And I think we have to acknowledge this. People enjoy, like, it feels good. And people write about this in the book, the feeling of euphoria from it, just that it's a feeling that they get nowhere else, that, um, you know, they're, they're... they're, they hate their jobs, their life, whatever it might be, and then there's this moment. But then they get caught in the cycle of it. They get pulled into its grips. And I don't think there's any way you, you can reasonably study that and say that's a moral failing. At that point, you're talking about chemical dependency. And a lot of people didn't believe it. Well, maybe a lot of people still don't believe it. But I think fewer people believe it today than than in the past. Uh, and that's a good thing that we're talking about it in that way.
0: I I think perhaps uh, something that's uh, cut against the the moral failing idea is the fact of so many people with opioids got on them through doctors' prescriptions through yeah. through pain management for
1: real pain. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, Berkeley and I teach at a medical school here at Ohio University. Uh, no, and there are several clinicians who have written pieces in the book. No physician wants to send their patient away in pain, Uh, you know, and we understand why they really care about their patients. Now, So, you know, there's there's a couple of different aspects of this. One is we don't have many alternatives, and there's you you can do the reading on why that is, and it's complicated, but the research has kind of landed us with the opioids, and now we're sitting here saying, well, what else do we have to address pain? And the answer is not that much, although there are a bunch of people who are kind of at the wings saying, we have an idea, the marijuana people think they have something. You know, I mean, the conversation is going to be what it is. Um, So... So, so I, I do think that th- that's part of it. And and the the fact that so much of this crisis, as Sam Canonis in his book Dreamland kind of, you know, that's the big right. book around this. You know, Sam um, shows, I mean, this really, what's one of the thing, unique things about this is that it started, dependency really did start through very like well-known legal means, right? These were prescribed drugs. Now you have the question of who's responsible for that. When you have a town of a thousand people and you have, more than a million prescriptions running through there, something was going on and somebody was looking the other way. And why is that? Um, you know, the FDA uh, gets gets called in there, the, uh, the distributors get called out like Cardinal Health. Uh, and that's part of the conversation that's happening with all the litigation in 2020. And that's going to be a big thing this year. So there's enough blame to go around for sure. Um, but the fact that it, is related to this very real thing of pain I think is is, is an important thing for people to, to know talk about the switch n-
0: not the switch but the evolution perhaps back to methamphetamine uh,
1: why is that happening so that's going to be outside of the scope of my real understanding here I mean uh, I, I don't know I don't know the how to answer that exactly, one thing I can say is that the the traditional story that's told around the opioid part of things, I mean, I think it is important to just think about addiction and about people in the cycles of addiction getting what they need to maintain um, the, people will find things no matter what, and then there are markets there to meet those needs. That's kind of the story when, you know, Ohio acted in 2011 with the pill mill bill, shut down a lot of the pill mills, but then you had this massively addicted population. So what was the next story? The heroin addiction. You know? Then you move the street drugs. Then you moved you have fentanyl and carfentanyl and these kinds of things that have made their way through. So, you know, that's why it's important. And I think while Berkeley and I were, interested in writing about this particular moment with the opioid addiction crisis that was facing our state. As we got involved in this very fast, it became, oh, this needs to be a moment to think about what are we doing and how are we thinking about addiction generally?
0: One of the Differences in your book, obviously, is that people are—you've given people the opportunity to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. You didn't frame the stories. You right. didn't. We didn't write you, the book. We you edited didn't the book. Tell them. Yeah. yeah, you did some editing, but you—you you didn't tell the stories. I, I was interested in one aspect of that. Uh, you talked about uh, paraphrasing is is not the same as letting somebody tell their story, and that you've learned new terminology or new words or new potentially stigmatizing language yeah. that
1: that came out of your learning experience editing this book. Yeah, I mean, I I've always been, you know, and Berkeley has too in her in her scholarship. Been attentive to language. I, I have a particular um, love of rhetoric and classical rhetoric, and studying just how we talk about policy issues in my current work. Um, you know, even the language of crisis or epidemic. I mean, language when you choose a frame to talk about something, you are determining a lot about it. War on drugs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Any any number of issues. Um, so you know, that's true here as well. Um, we have a history of. Lots of like stigma makes its way through language in large part. Um, and it's not that we want to just change how people talk about things, but oftentimes talking how, changing how we talk about things is a reminder that the thing is different, you know, that, that we have to start thinking about it differently. An example that comes up a lot in the addiction world is the idea of being, quote unquote, "clean. And what are we suggesting about in using that expression? And that's a, uh, that's fallen out of favor in terms of a way to talk about it. And you think about the metaphors we use and what they suggest about responsibility or even purity. You know, the human condition is complicated. We're messy. We're morally flawed. We're, you know, okay one moment, not okay. We're all going to need health care and we're all going to get sick and we're all going to die someday. So... Our language that operates in absolutes and these promises of things like curing, quote-unquote. Cure might be the right word for sometimes, but to use language intentionally is to pay attention to what people need and where they are, I think. Talk
0: about those two words just for a minute to, to let our audience let this sink in. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of being clean uh, – denotes that if you are an addict you're somehow physically unclean dirty. or
1: dirty yeah. or 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 morally unclean
0: is is that what you're talking about
1: yeah that's part of it and also the idea of I mean we have a history where the language of clean cleanliness I mean it's it's uh, laden with all sorts of social next, meaning. Next to godliness is Absolutely. the old phrase. Right? Absolutely. But we talk about, I mean, you know, ethnic cleansing. You know, we have this history of, of using this language in terms of the ideal being clean, but also clean being something that can often be extremely – I mean, we know that there there are there are extremes here to it, right? When you start to fetishize the idea of being totally clean of something um, – then you've entered it. Oh, you've almost flipped it the other way. You're not dealing with the messiness of life. And uh, that's a language that, you know, we will hear um, some people in recovery use that language. But as I mentioned before, the real goal with most people in recovery is to just start to take each day in a realistic way, acknowledging that, you know, there are going to be bumps and that perfection is not the goal. It's the journey. It's not a cure, that
0: you take a pill and it's over.
1: Right. It's it's actually, I mean, to really, if we take the end of this book seriously, and but also pieces throughout it, these are just people trying to live their lives. Um, you know, as I mentioned even before, there's a sort of parallel here. The good family, quote unquote, the family that somehow saw itself as one of the good ones, only to find out that the difference between them and the so-called quote unquote bad families was just um, uh, one addiction or one night or one one event. Um, So actually, these things are much closer to one another than we realize. And if our language can be a bit more honest and a bit more direct about what the human experience is, then we can actually start to get down to living together. If you idealize somebody that you live with or that you work with or whatever, and then you get to know them. What happens when you get to know somebody? You're like, wow, this person's much you more complicated than I knew. See all the warts and all. <laughs> sure, sure. So I, I think there's a similar kind of thing, and we're looking for a strategy for living together and li- and living, staying alive, and that requires knocking down some of our ideals, I think, as well and being honest about what an incomplete project life is. As a scholar, I, I n- know you – Work with data,
0: and, and a bit. And, and, I'm and I'm not a quantitative person. I, I, I understand that. that, but but you seek facts, mm-hmm. and in whatever form they come about. Sometimes, when you're in an area that you may not be familiar with, you get surprised.
1: Yeah.
0: What surprised you about this project? What What was there? An aha surprise moment that you had?
1: Well, as I mentioned, I mean, th- I think the diversity of our state and, and learning about—and and, and I don't have an answer to this question, so don't ask me—but uh, you know, what? Why is Day- why are Dayton's overdose deaths decreasing and Franklin counties are increasing? You know, they—they they both have these task forces. They both have money going in there. They, you know, and that's a real policy question. But also, there are probably other variables that we're trying to understand. Um, so regional diversity, why, why is one area doing better on the way up or on the way down or whatever? You know? I, I think for me, in, in looking at the data, that's where we then start to say, well, now we need to get down to what is that place doing? Are they talking about the issue more? Um, is there a major benefactor or like is the sheriff's department? Are they, are they, do they have drug courts and those are being successful? Policy people are always looking for things that work. And sometimes there are so many variables that you really have to sift through it before you can figure out what the difference maker might be. So that's a roundabout answer, a way of answering your question, which is I was – you know, we always know that numbers don't tell the entire story. Although there are some people who talk about the numbers in our book and numbers and, you know, the, just the data is really important. Public health departments collecting data is something we need to do and do more, hotspotting and figuring out where, you know. Um, but our book kind of complements that as well and says that's not the entire way to tell the story. Also, you know, one of the things that came out there, whenever you talk to people about issues, if you spend time with people, and I think it sounds crazy, we don't do it enough. But Berkeley and I sat in a lot of rooms with a lot of people just listening to stories. You, you hear things that, you know, are surprising that maybe you haven't thought about if you're lucky, um, most of the parents who write about their children who died from addiction-related, you know, overdoses and things, they mostly regard their children as heroes. They fought. They really tried. They did. It. This is, these are not failures, right? And and just understanding the complexity of parents, I think, um, the difficulty of being a parent who makes the hard decision that their their child is not going to be allowed back in the house, right? That's excruciating for people to make that decision. But as you listen to people's stories, you start to understand all the balancing that was going on and you become less judgmental about that. Uh, Berkeley and I have met lots of grandparents who are taking care of their grandkids because their children are either gone or incarcerated. Um, Try learning to become a parent again as a grandparent with all the changes and all the difficulties. Grandparents need a lot of support around our Our um, our state. So just just those little moments where you hear a story that twists you a little bit and you say, ah, I never thought of that, and then you start to see the issue more clearly through that. As a political science policy person,
0: do you look what's the next step? Do you go deeper with this or do you say, okay, I've looked at that, now I need to go on to something else?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, can't speak for Berkeley on this one exactly, I mean, Berkeley's doing quite a bit of opioid-related research as well in hospitals and all that, and that's really important research. There's so much work to do, first of all, And, and one of the things that I think we learned through this is there are just people all around the state, all around the country who are doing tons of important work, not just dealing with the actual sort of crises at hand, but trying to figure out what next. And you know sometimes you're just triaging and trying to help people in the immediate moment. you don't have time to do that more long-term planning. I'm seeing more long-term planning going around about our, you know, our state's addiction services infrastructure, um, you know, Medicaid, how we can do this better. So I think that's really good because we can't just be responding all the time. To my mind, I, I, what I've gotten out of this and where I hope to continue to do this work, is to be a little bit of a thorn in the side of the people who want to, um, you know, pop the cork and say, hey, we did great. You know, um, good job. We, you know, as soon as the overdose deaths start falling, you know, which they will because the next thing will be on. I want to learn the bigger lessons and I, and I want to see if we can, um, you know, not not let our stake get out of the big question here, which is the deeper so- social question of what is it about us that makes addiction so easy, so prevalent, so enduring, and also, have we finally learned some lessons about just how how deadly stigma is? That the way we talk about this stuff really matters. Um, I tell this to students: you can't, you know, you can't be a, a physician who, when you're in the room, you're compassionate and filled with support for your patients, and then turn around, and when you're outside of the room, have the stigma. You need to fundamentally change yourself and make sure that those parts are consistent. And I think, you know, I hope that people and I think that politics has a lot to do with this. We can't just use this issue for a sort of cheap one-off. It has to be something that, that, that endures. And I don't know the, how, how to get there exactly, but you do have to be the person who reminds people to not call it a day fast. You know, and say, though this is a long, long process, and um, we're not even close to there yet. There's more work to do. Tons more work.
0: Dr. Skinner, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Appreciate being here. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Daniel Skinner, co-editor of the book, Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids and Ohio. He talks about the book and the multifaceted aspects of the drug crisis facing the nation. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. And if you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, or if you have a suggested topic for us to cover, please direct those comments to me by email at hodson at That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.